Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I'm so excited to introduce our special guest today. Dr. Keith Gregoire is the author of The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. We are going to touch upon it. That is not the main topic of today's podcast because he's also a pediatrician. He's a man of faith and he is a birder. He's got a thing for hawks. We're going to cover all of that in today's podcast. Dr. Keith, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Courtney. It is so, so good to have you. I was, uh, I connected with your wife, first of all, and she said, oh, Keith loves birds. He'd love to talk to you. And I said, oh, he's so busy. Does he have time? And she said, I think he'd really love a podcast that's talking about birds and not just about sex issues within marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because that's what we do most of the time is we sort of debunk a lot of unhealthy messaging about sex that has kind of invaded the Christian church. Um, And we're just trying sort of things are taught as the gospel, which are actually really quite toxic. <laughs> and we're sort of trying trying to call the church to better things in this area and things that are more holistic and healing. But that gets really, really heavy. And it's just nice to talk about birds instead, because it's just so much more fun and relaxing. Birds are the great unifier. You know, it's, oh, hard, yes. to, it's hard to disagree about birds. Some people love them. Mm. Some people don't really notice them, but they don't tend to make people upset in the ways that some of these deeper topics can. <laughs> Yeah. So tell me about the work that you and Sheila both separately and together do around this topic of kind of working through these myths that have, as you said, infected Mm -hmm. the church around the issues of intimacy. Uh, Well, basically, Sheila started off as a mommy blogger, you know, years and years ago, and she uh, made a bit of a name for herself in that sphere. Um, And then every once in a while, she'd kind of foray into the topic of sex. And Whenever she did that, her traffic seemed to increase <laughs> because there was a real need for good teaching about that. So she kept, uh, so she started talking more and more about that uh, on her blog. And in, in fact, actually 10 years ago, she wrote a book called The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, which is meant for a Christian audience, uh, basically just trying to, you know, reclaim sex as something that's good and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and she continued to become more and more of an expert in this area. But what she found was that she was getting the same problems people are coming to the same problems over and over and over again and so she um basically at one point I, I won't tell the whole story but at one point she just realized that the problem was that what we were being taught was based upon people's presuppositions uh and their you know sort of like ideas of gender hierarchy and all these things that were sacred cows to them and they were reading that into the bible and saying this is the only way you can do marriage And they were just not noticing the fact that it was actually causing harm. So what Sheila did was she actually did a huge study of 20,000 women. uh, And she basically surveyed them about their marital satisfaction, their sexual satisfaction, and then asked them about whether they believed certain teachings, which were common in the evangelical church, uh, and then correlated those. So she didn't just say, "Do, do you think this teaching harmed you? She said, you know, how's your sex life? How's your marriage? 
hey, do you believe this? And then she compared the people who believed that with the people who didn't believe that and said, who has the better marriages? Who has the better sex lives? And she found time and time again, there were very damaging messages that were causing harm. And so that that was the, the basis of her book, The Great Sex Rescue, mm. which is uh, meant to uh, sort of, you know, dispel the myths that you've been taught and recover what God actually wanted sex to be in marriage. Hmm. Yeah, I, so. I so appreciate the work that that both of you do. And, and I think these things, people in the church, we, we tend to either be squeamish and don't want to talk about it yep. or, you know, have not examined the deeper beliefs that then do affect how we parent, how we interact, you know, just in, in, in the kitchen in a daily life, much less those deeper, more intimate things. And so mm-hmm. The ways you unpack these, the ways Sheila has such a gift of um, putting people at ease so they want to tell her these things. Like these can be hard things to talk about. Yeah. Um, and how did your book come about? Well, yeah. And so, so this is the thing is you're saying the thing, the work that we are doing, but you know, it's, it's, it's really Sheila. I'm just kind of helping out. <laughs> you're uh, a pediatrician. You have other I things she, going on. Yeah. I, well, I think she's amazing. I just have such a great pride in the work that she's done. She's just fantastic. And, uh, you know, the level of this kind of scientific research that she's doing from her little, you know, chair in our house. It's just fantastic. Um, but anyway, but then at one point uh, along the way, she said to me, hey, how would you like to go and speak with me at churches about these kind of topics and stuff? And like, you know, uh, that's not the kind of thing that your husband really wants his wife to sort of suggest. But I said, you know, this is important. Let's go ahead and do it. And I jumped in with both feet. And then eventually um, the 10 year uh, anniversary came uh, of her book, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And there was the offer to write a a guide for the guys. And so she asked if I would co-author that with her. And so the two of us worked together and we wrote the good guys guide uh, to great sex. And again, it's it's meant for uh, from a, to come from a Christian perspective, uh, and it's less of the takedown that the good the great sex rescue is. It's less of a this is all the horrible stuff you've been taught, and it's more like hey, what if we started with a nice holistic, yeah. you know you know, centered in a Christian ethic, but but a more healthy, holistic way of looking at this rather than all the baggage from purity culture and all that kind of stuff. And that's what the, that's what the good guy's guide to great sex is. Interestingly, the other thing that happened when Sheila was given this offer of writing this book with me, um, she said, I'll do it, but I want to edit the girl's guide because in the 10 mm-hmm. years since that was launched, she's actually learned and, and learned and listen to women and seeing what the needs were. And so some of the things she even taught, she realized that, you know what, I was kind of going down some of those old stereotypic pathways in the past and I mm. want to update my book too. So she did that basically for free, mm. um, which again, to me, to me is just a amazing testimony of her integrity that she, it's really about getting truth out there rather than thinking that we have the, the corner on truth. We're always developing. We're always learning. We're always trying to be better. So. That's a, I love that story. I love the journey that the two of you have been on and your willingness to, to jump in with her. I think there are, there are seasons in ministry where we volunteer and there are seasons where we kind of get drafted and God uses them both. Yes. So tell me about your work as a pediatrician there in Ontario. What's your practice like? Yeah. Okay. Well, I do, I've, I've done a number of different things over time, um, but I've been mostly in Southern Ontario. Uh, I've, I'm a general consultant pediatrician. So I don't know how many of your listeners are Canadian versus American uh, or other countries, uh, but in uh, Canada, pediatricians are 
typically not what we would call primary care, like I think in the States. Uh, so basically we're, we're more of a consultant. So most kids are looked after by family doctors or nurse practitioners. And then if they've got a problem that they want someone who see, only sees kids to weigh in on and help with, then they send them to me. So that's what I've done for about 25 years now um, in Southern Ontario. Uh, for a while, I was, I was actually uh, on site at Queen's University uh, in mm-hmm. Kingston, was was a professor there um, on site. Now I'm just an adjunct professor. I don't work in Kingston anymore, uh, but I, I still have ties with the university. And one of the things I really love, and it ties into the birding aspect of your podcast is in the last few years, I've had the opportunity to go up up north and provide pediatric care to some of the remote northern areas that are underserviced. Uh, and that's been phenomenal, both as a pediatrician to be able to answer that sort of need and, and, and help in that sort of area that it's so desperately needed. But also just, it's just great to get up there and see some of those really neat birds that you only see in Northern Ontario. So I'm, I'm down here in uh, in Southern Ontario and scouring the bushes for like pine gross beaks and crossbills and they're just everywhere up there. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> it's amazing what even a few hours can do in birding, mm-hmm. right? You drive a couple yeah. hours and it's an entirely new ecosystem. It's an entirely new set of trees. It's an entirely new experience. And uh, the the work that you do, so it is it is a weighty thing to talk about sex in the church and the Mm -hmm. myths we've begun to believe, it is a weighty thing to work with sick kids. You know, I think over the pediatricians, we have three kids, 10, seven, and four, and the ways that our pediatricians have ministered to us Mm -hmm. when we are stressed as parents, when the child is sick, when we would do anything. And and so you have these these two facets of your vocation that are both very heavy, and then Mm -hmm. you're a birder. How do those things fit together? How do they influence each other? Oh, yeah. Well, I, birding is definitely one of the things that keeps me sane. That's for sure. I, I love how you you understand the, the weightiness of pediatrics. It's it's kind of funny. I often get the, the sense of people say, it's, I say I'm a, I'm a doctor. And everyone's like, oh, that's really heavy. And then I go, yeah, I'm a pediatrician. They go, oh, okay. So it's like, it's kind of like, you know, you're a pediatrician, so it's not a real doctor. Like someday you'll grow up and be a real doctor, but you're just a pediatrician. But it's like, you're right. When people's kids are sick, it's like, I don't know about you, but I'd rather me be sick than my kid be sick. Like it's so much more stressful, right? Thousand percent. And kids have smaller veins and they can't always articulate yes. what's wrong. And being, yeah. I mean, it feels 10 times harder. I, yeah. But it, I think it's I think it's one of the hardest um, strains of medicine to go into, and it, and it's heavy work. Like sick kids are are devastatingly sad. It's mm-hmm. it's and the parents are devastatingly sad. And I I worked as a hospice chaplain for a short time, and the thing that did me in was the kids and sitting with the families of the kids. It's you know it's sad when anyone dies. It's hard when ninety year old grandpa dies, but ninety year old grandpa we know that there's a trajectory here when it's a nine-year-old, when it's a six-year-old. And, and so, yeah, tell me about birding, keeping you yeah. sane, keeping you so, grounded, yeah, so, keeping you, so, keeping you afloat. So, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I actually picked up birding about uh, nine years ago. Um, so it's something that I, I, you know, wasn't really part of my life before that, but I've always kind of enjoyed nature. I've always really liked being outdoors. We always camped when I was a, a young uh, kid, I was involved in like, you know, Boy Scouts and, and, you know, I always loved being out in the, in the wilderness and that sort of thing. Um, but I never really got into birds, particularly until about nine years ago. It was actually the, the movie, The Big Year. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. 
uh, that got me started on it. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's actually kind of neat. Like I didn't realize how many types of birds there are out there. I mean, for instance, the, the whole idea of you talk about, um, a duck and to me, a duck was a mallard. <laughs> and then to learn that there's so many different types of ducks, like there's family groupings of ducks, you know, like there's so many different types just in my, you know, local, you know, ponds and rivers and streams it was just so fantastic. And so getting out there and finding that was, it's just such a nice thing. It, it, medicine is, it, there's a lot of overlap with medicine and birding, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's sort of, you, you kind of go looking for things. You have to keep your mind open. What are you going to find? Um, but then ultimately, you know, the, the way that I do birding is I try and make a list of all the birds I've seen that day. And, uh, and so when you, when you make a list, when you, when you make a, um, an identification of a bird, in a sense, you're kind of making a diagnosis. And, and so like in the same thing in medicine, you're like, you have to keep your mind open because you might think it's one thing, but, oh, actually, no, it turned to the left slightly. And I realized it's not that it's this. And, and uh, so there's a lot of overlap in medicine too. So it, it actually, I think it helps hone your skills as a doctor because it teaches you to identify and, and to keep an open mind about things. I talked to a birder a few months ago who described it as constantly solving small puzzles. Yeah, yeah. That's and right. I love that. Like, oh, I thought it was this, but there's a white wing bar that I didn't notice until I yes. got the binoculars out. And yep. yeah. So, and then you learn to recognize very specific patterns. And that's always really cool. Like, what's that drab little thing? It's some kind of warbler, but I don't know what it is. And then bang, there's that little white patch on the side. And you know, it's a female black-throated blue. Like, you know, just like, and the fact that you know that, that that one little patch tells you for sure that's what it is. Um, it's just such, it's such a fantastic thing. And, and that sense of accomplishment with, with just that little bit of knowledge that you learn from other people. So it does. It's magic. It's magic yeah. every time this discovery and this, you know, the whimsy of being able to notice something and name something. Wendell Berry has a beautiful passage where he writes about learning the names for things and how mm -hmm. when we know their names, then we know them in a deeper way. And I think, you know, when, when our pediatrician walks in the room and talks to our four-year-old daughter by name, there's this connection that forms between them. And, and I lived my whole life without noticing birds, but all of a sudden there's one in our backyard. What is it? And then I learned the name and then this spark of love. And I love the connection you made between the identification and the knowledge and, and the love. And I think there's, there's a theology of birding in that mm. and how it teaches us to see and it teaches us to notice and it teaches us to love. And I, I find that as I bird, it does not just connect with birding, but it connects with my work as a pastor. And what do I notice about, oh, this person's shoulders seem a little bit slumped today. Maybe she's going through something. Maybe I need to to put in a phone call. Um, it influences every area of my life and my, and my ministry and my practice. Um, what does your birding life look like? Where do you love to go? What do you love to see? What are you excited about as we think about spring and into summer and, and <laughs> you thawing out up there in Canada? <laughs> well, one of the uh, things I've really enjoyed doing recently is currently in Ontario, we're in the middle of um, doing a breeding bird atlas. So basically, um, uh, it's a it's a major project where we're trying to document uh, where birds are breeding in Ontario. So the first atlas was done from 1981 to 1985, and the second one was done from 2001 to 2005. And now we're doing the third Ontario breeding bird atlas. Sorry, now we're doing the third Ontario breeding bird atlas from 2021 to 2025. And I've got some areas that I'm responsible for where I'm supposed to go and find all the different birds and, and that sort of thing. And the thing that I've really enjoyed about that is it's a completely different way of birding mm -hmm. because I'm not just going out to see if I can see a red-tailed hawk. Mm -hmm. I'm going out to see if I can prove that it's breeding here. Mm 
So you're looking for things like, you know, um, some birds will have like a brooding patch on their abdomen where they've, because they've been sitting on eggs or, or you just look, oh, that's a fledgling of this kind of species of bird. And you, you learn to recognize those kind of things or watching bird behaviors and seeing courtship and documenting that kind of stuff. And that's been really fun because it's, it's taught me a whole bunch of new skills that I didn't have. And it's taught me a different appreciation because once you're birding for a while, we get a little, blase about some of the common species right oh it's like you hear the black cap chickadee in your in your uh ear and you don't even look for it because you just put it down the list i saw i heard a black cap chickadee or a carolina chickadee depending on where you are <laughs> you know down there but now i'm training myself oh where is it what's it doing can i see is there evidence of breeding is it building a nest is it you know is it that kind of thing and so it makes you it's sort of regenerated a lot of uh, love for some of those common birds that I think that sometimes we kind of pass over and it's, it's, it makes you appreciate them. Like for instance, one of the things is frustrating is I cannot find a blue jay nest anywhere. <laughs> and I've got all kinds of robins nests and, you know, like warbling vireo nests and all kinds of other nests, that, but I just can't find a blue jay nest. And it's like, they're so common. <laughs> Why can't I find a blue jay nest? It just makes you realize that there's so much mystery and wonder and uh, even the common birds are just amazing and and uh, and just wonderful. Yeah. Mm. It's a treasure hunt. It is. It is. It really is. I want to hear about when you find that blue jay nest. That's going to be a big day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a note. I'm yeah, I love put, it. I'm going to put it. I think I'm going to put it on my Facebook page. Like, okay, everyone, this is crazy. I can't find a blue jay nest. <laughs> I find all these other things, but I, I, we had a, a red-tailed hawk nest uh, right near where I lived last year. That was really awesome to see little two little uh, fledgling uh, red-tailed hawks inside their nest. Um, we had some, not not during the breeding atlas, but I had great horned owls uh, nesting in the woods behind my house a few years ago before the breeding atlas started. And that was amazing to see those too. So I love seeing, uh, you know, nests of the fledglings and that sort of thing. It's It's so beautiful. You're a bird pediatrician. Yeah, I, I guess. I actually hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> just can't get away from the babies, can you, Keith? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so neat. Well, mm. tell me a little bit about how the myths of the church can infect our understanding of the natural world. Because sometimes we go down these paths of developing unhealthy theologies that then affect how we might bird, how we might care for the natural world, how we might even think about the natural world. How do you see those things playing out? Oh yeah, I, I definitely think they do. Um, I, you know, I have I have um, I have friends of all backgrounds, right? I have friends who are, uh, are people of faith. I have fr people who, friends who are you know not that's not part of their life. I have friends who are antithetical to faith. They they are. This is <laughs> my goal is to make you people realize how crazy you are. <laughs> um, so I, and I have all sometimes those different... we need a little of that because sometimes we are. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Well, that's what, that's what Sheila and I do for, with our writing. Right. Um, and, and I, and I see a lot of things in the church that I, you know, I think we give we who are followers of Christ a bad name. Right. Uh, I mean, I think of the, the one that's the most egregious to me is um, John MacArthur. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's a big pastor down in the Southern States. And, and he actually came out and said that God, God created this to be a disposable planet. 
um, the, all this stuff about climate change and all this stuff about trying to preserve the natural world is, you know, it's, it's kind of anti-God to him because God, God's going to destroy it all. And we're all going to be sucked up into heaven at the rapture. And this is all going to be burned and it's a disposable planet, just throw it away. And, and that's one way of being a Christian, <laughs> but it's not the way that I want to be a Christian. And I don't think it's the way that the Bible portrays being a follower of, of God. I mean, the whole, the whole Bible starts with the story of a, a garden and tending a garden and being a steward of things and not of using it for my own benefit and then throwing away the, the wrappings and don't worry, God, God will take care of it all in the end. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the exact opposite of what a, a faith-based view of the world should be. How does your faith personally affect your birding? What is the connection for you between spirituality and birds? Oh, I mean, I I really have a sense of, you know, being with God when I'm in nature. Um, and, you know, some people who have like sort of the MacArthur view, or, well, you're basically a pagan, <laughs> you know, you're, 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 a, you know, God's in the church, he's not in nature. <laughs> it's like, that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I have such a, feel such a closeness. It's like, um, God is amazing and, and what he's created is amazing and beautiful. It's like, you know, when you see a, when you see a beautiful painting, right? I think you have a, a view of the, the heart of the artist. You know, I just, my wife and I just bought a, a, an art piece recently and it's just lovely. And, and I just, as I see this, this painting that he made, I can see not just how beautiful it is, but I can see what he was trying to accomplish. Um, by the way he did his brushstrokes, by the way he used the colors, the texture, all that sort of stuff. And to me, it's very similar when I'm in nature. It's like I'm, it's God's beautiful canvas. And I can see not just how beautiful it is and, and marvel in its intensity and its diversity and its complete, you know, rapturous beauty. I mean, that's all amazing. And I can do all that. But I also really think I can get a sense of what he was attempting to communicate. And I think, I think he was attempting to communicate love and, and, and care. And it's, it's, it's good to feel at peace and, 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 and at one, and it's good to feel centered. And it's, it's good to feel, it's good to notice what's around you. It's good to, to be a part of this. And that to me is, is the big thing is to me, my faith is, the way that I see the, the the gospel is that we all know the world's a broken place. People of faith, you don't have to be a person of faith to see that. G.K. Chesterton said that of all the Christian doctrines, there are probably the fall is the easiest one to prove. Mm. <laughs> you know? So we know the world's broken. It's got its issues. But to me, the gospel is that even in its brokenness, God wants to enter in. And God wants to use us to help to heal what is broken. And to me, conservation and taking care of nature is part of that. The other part of it is healing sickness and injury. And that's what I do in my job as a pediatrician. And the third aspect is healing relationships mm. and, and, and restoring faith when people have been hurt by the church, by bad teachings, labeling that and saying, no, that teaching was a man-made teaching that people use the Bible to beat you over the head with, and it's not from God. <laughs> um, all those things to me are, are, are the gospel. It, the gospel is bringing wholeness and health and healing to a broken world. 
And, and I see that in, in nature and I see that in, in it, birding is like a little glimpse into that. God wants, God wants us to enter in and enjoy his creation because his creation is ultimately good. Mm. And we get the wonderful, amazing privilege of where it's gone awry to help to try and bring it back online. Mm. And I think that's amazing. That is so beautifully stated. I I hear you weaving in kind of the great tradition of Christianity that the church used to be very clear in part of our mandate is to care for creation. Part of our mandate is healing. There were so many, you know, especially Catholic orders thousands of years ago that would found hospitals and, and we've, we've lost a little bit of that. I think I'm, you know, I'm Presbyterian and part of the Protestant turn has been this deep, deep focus on the life of the mind above all else. And the life of the mind is so important, but it cannot be at the expense of the natural world. It cannot be at the expense of what it means to care for brothers and sisters who are suffering in body, who are suffering in mind, uh, because these tangible things are outpourings of the gospel. And I, I grew up evangelical, had a wonderful childhood. It taught me the Bible, you know, great church, but there kind of was no one between the apostle Paul and Billy Graham. Like there's, <laughs> We lost it. And, and the more I kind of recover, oh my goodness, St. Augustine had things to say about natural theology and our care for the world. Thomas Aquinas had things to say. Teresa of Avila had things to say. And it's just so hopeful to realize people have thought about this before and realized that God mm-hmm. mandated this and recovering that is a holy thing, whether it's in the realm of the myths around sex or the myths around creation or the myths around healing. You know, you just, if you pray harder, you, you wouldn't have, you know, depression. <laughs> That's not exactly the truth. Um, we, oh yeah. Are- it's, it's, it's not only not the truth, it's actually another level of harm You've got an injured person and I'm pressing on the wound. Yeah. That's terrible. But we do get that kind of stuff in the church. And I think it's because we have, particularly in the evangelical church, because I, you know, I, uh, I am, most of my experience in Christianity has been in the evangelical church. Um, but particularly evangelical church, I think we have an idea that the gospel is, uh, basically that we're all bad. God wants to punish us, but he punishes Jesus instead. So we can go to heaven. And so the problem with, if that's your idea of the gospel, then, then, then basically it has no impact on my life today. The gospel really is, oh, I was in, in a bad place and I was going to a bad place, but now God's going to let me go to heaven when I die. Mm. And that's the gospel. And that's such a, that's not the gospel. <laughs> Jesus said, you know, when Jesus came and preached, he said, the kingdom of God is here. Like that's the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. I mean, I don't know how much uh, you talk about different theologians and stuff. You mentioned a lot of theologians from the past. Personally, one of the people I really love these days is N.T. Wright. Have you read much oh, of his stuff? Love N.T. Wright. Yeah. And and that's that's the stuff I think we need to hear is, is he talks about, a, I mean, he says it so much, so eloquently, but he basically says that we've, we've Platonized our eschatology. And so we've paganized our soteriology. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. basically, when we say that heaven is the point of the gospel, I was going to burn, but now I'm going to go to paradise because Jesus died. That's our if that's that's Platonism. It's like it's like the earth and everything here is bad, but eventually I'll be in the perfect ideal world, heaven. That's Platonism. That's not Christianity. And Absolutely. so the result is that our salvation makes God look like this horrible. You know, he's like Zeus wanting to throw thunderbolts at us, but thankfully Jesus intervenes and we get to go to heaven. Like 
that's the gospel. And no wonder people outside the church don't look at that and go, yay, sign me up. They say, your God's mean and horrible and petty. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And yes. I think that's a very appropriate response. <laughs> so I think that, you know, that NT Wright's been really helpful for me to have a much more holistic view of what the gospel is. And that's kind of the stuff that, and that's kind of the stuff I was saying earlier about help with the healing of where things have gone off. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And those three streams weave together that, yeah. that better theology and healing of the body and connection to the natural world, that it is all connected. And yeah. The natural world is such a picture of that. If I've been talking to so many ornithologists and ecologists who talk about if you pull out the one Jenga block, the whole thing falls down, yes. even though you didn't realize that this little, you know, parasitic gnat was connected <laughs> to this huge hawk population. And and our spiritual lives are the same way. It's not just one day I'll fly to heaven. It's we are people who are body, mind, and soul. And God is yeah. concerned with all three of those things. And the gospel speaks to all three of those things. And we're so impoverished when we lose any one of those. So I key, agree. Yeah. hundred percent. That's if you could rewrite some of the myths around any one of these areas, if you could rewrite one of the myths or set people straight on one of the myths, or maybe it's not set them straight because I think arguing people into a better place is counterproductive 90% of the time. But if you could give people hope in a certain area of a myth that you see folks in the church tend to believe that's harmful, that's damaging. What myth would you like to, to oh, speak wow. to, breathe some new life into today? Um, about the natural world or about the other stuff that we do? Either, either, or both. I know your, your focus is, is on, on sex within marriage. And I would love yeah. to hear about that or about your birding or, you know, pick a few. <laughs> okay. We're all yours. <laughs> well, I, I guess um, there's so many things because, but with, with regards to sex in marriage, I think the big thing that uh, the church has gotten wrong is we have lost what you said earlier about how God uh, wants to minister. We, we are more than just, you know, that we are body, mind, and soul. Right. And I think in the church, we've lost track of that. And I think we've, we've sort of, uh, we don't have a very robust um, idea of what a Christian sexual ethic should look like. So inside the church, basically, we get these messages that like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of, there's a book series called Every Man's Battle. And basically, this series says, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. This is just the way men are. And so the, the way you avoid that is by women, you should dress more modestly. And wives, make sure you, you give your husband's lots of sex so he won't stray because men are just made to be like that. Animals. Yeah. And that's a Christian book. And I want to put a very small C at the front of that word, because I don't think that has anything to do with a Christian ethic, but mm. that's what we get taught in the church. And it's because we have bought into a very unhealthy view of masculinity and femininity, uh, because most of what is preached in the church is men are meant to be in charge, women need to submit to them, uh, men are like this, women are like that. Um, and all that kind of stuff. And I just have no tolerance for that kind of stuff whatsoever. Uh, I think if you read the Bible, it's very clear from the beginning that both Adam and Eve were created to be stewards of this world together. Uh, and I think all of that nonsense is clearly, clearly, and spelled out in Genesis chapter 3, all that nonsense is clearly result of the disobedience and the fall. Uh, your husband, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That is like, that's not even God saying it should happen. God's saying it will happen. That will happen when we have a broken world. Men who have more power will use it to dominate women. That is not a good thing. Mm. 
Mm. But so much of the church teaches it like that is the way that God intended things to be. And to me, nothing can be further from the truth. Mm. So, and I have all kinds of things I can say about that, but I won't. <laughs> but if you go to Sheila's blog, Bare Marriage, um, mm. every once in a while I write articles. And most of the time when I write, it's about trying to bash that kind of nonsense. <laughs> so if you're interested in that. So from a from a, a a bird point of view, I guess the one thing I would say is, um, uh, and it's not a religious thing, but it's a um, it's just a, a obstacle to birding. As I sometimes think, people, especially when when um, they're around people like me who are so intense and make all these lists and and you know learn, like I said earlier about the fact that this little white spot on the side of the wing shows that it's this particular bird. That that can kind of get a little bit overwhelming for people, and they 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 think, uh, well, I guess birdie's not for me because I'm I, I don't know that much. I would say no, that's not true. I, I think that if you like looking at birds, you're a birder. <laughs> Go and and be a birder. It's great. Just you don't have to be amazing. You don't have to know all this kind of stuff. We talk about these things, and I think it's great. And one of the things I love the most about bird watching is that every single time I go out, I learn something new. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so I, I know more now than I used to, but if I, if I had thought that I need to know a, a whole ton before I start, I never would have got started. So just if you're out there and you're sort of thinking, oh, I like birds, but well, I'm not like those people or I'm not an ornithologist or doesn't matter. You like birds, go enjoy birds. The, one of the things that I think that helps me with, uh, one of the things that I really love about birding is it's. It helps with mindfulness. Like, do you talk much about mindfulness on your podcast? I mean, mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of issues about, there's a lot of help that we get from more mindful. Like mindfulness is a really, really useful mental health tool. And to me, once I learned what birds sound like, now I hear them everywhere. So I'm walking down the middle of a busy street in downtown Toronto and I hear, that's a house finch. <laughs> And it's like, I'm suddenly aware that there's nature even here in the middle of the city, you know, it just, it trains you to be more open and receptive to the world. And and, and I think that starts with just saying, I like birds, I want to go try and find them. And so I just say, go ahead and do that. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it does. And I, I so appreciate both of those responses, because I, I do think people can get caught up in the I don't have the binoculars or the, the funny hat or the pants with all the pockets. Can I be a birder? <laughs> like, absolutely. Look out your window there. You're a birder. Yeah. Or no membership dues. You're invited. I, I heard this recently and I haven't had a chance to look it up um, and see if it's actually true. But I heard someone say there was a study that showed um, people who watch their bird feeders and are and have learned to identify 10 species at their bird feeders have an increase in their mental health that's better than if they got a pay raise at work <laughs> and i i have to go look at it so i can't vouch that that's actually true but someone said that and we're like, i gotta go try and find that study you know yeah look out your window and see get a bird feeder you know like and, and of course if you get a bird feeder i do want to say be responsible and learn how to care for your bird feeder because you know that's um bird seeds that are just put there and left and not if you're not cleaning them regularly, making sure they're well maintained, cannot be good for not cannot be good for birds. So just make sure you do a do it well. But get a bird feeder. You know, watch, watch birds in your backyard. It's it's so it's so easy and it's so much fun. It is, and it's 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 very low stakes, high reward. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 
It's one of the best ways I think to get children into birding too, because you, they may not want to go on a hike with you, but they're happy to look out the window. And those are some of the best moments in our house is when one of the kids is like, mom, you know, and I come running to the window and it's quote unquote, just a house finch, but they're yes. so excited. So I can be so excited and see that house finch that I've seen 68 times with new eyes because yeah. it is, it's exciting. There is no just a house finch. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because uh, you remind me of a, of a little story that I had with my grandson and he's, he's, he just, he was not even three. I think at the time it happened or he just turned three, he was, but, or just before his third birthday. And we were walking out just having a normal walk. And then I heard um, a white breasted nuthatch and I, it was there on the tree, right? But right beside us, like five feet away. So I said, Oh, Alex, look, there's a white breasted nuthatch. And I, every once in a while, I'll point out birds to him. And I've been doing this for a while, right? And I said, oh, look, there's a white-breasted nuthatch. I'm trying to teach him this, this new bird. And he goes, and he looks, he goes, yeah, and a red-winged blackbird. <laughs> and I look up at the top of the tree, there's a red-winged blackbird that I hadn't even seen yet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so amazing. So he obviously heard me say red-winged blackbird at some point, And he obviously knew what it was now, which is amazing. So. Kids pick up on that stuff. I, I would say your work as a grandparent is done. Success. You can you can retire. You've done it. <laughs> I, I have won being a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Level up. So what is, this is a very difficult question. This might be the hardest question I've asked you so far. And you can answer it just in terms of today. What okay. is your favorite bird? Yeah, I know. That's a hard one, eh? Um, so my favorite bird this week uh, for a very specific reason, is the Barrow's Golden Eye. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Tell me about okay. that. Tell our listeners so, about that. And the reason that's that's my favorite bird is because it's I just saw it for the first time in my county um, this week. And it was because my friend found it. <laughs> and, and he's a much better birder than I am. And so he texted me and said, hey, there's a Barrow's Golden Eye at this place. So I went there and I I saw it too, which was nice. Hmm. Uh, but basically, a golden a golden eye um, is a type of the most common one is called the common golden eye, and it's a type of diving duck, uh, hmm. and it's more common in Ontario in the winter, uh, and it's a black and white uh, bird. Now, the Barrow's golden eye is slightly different in that the the patterns on the wings are a little darker, and they have a, sort of a checkerboard pattern instead of. The common golden eye looks more like white with black lines in it. And the other thing is they have all the gold, the common golden eyes have a circular white spot on their face and the mm. barrows is a little crescent, like a little moon. Um, and so they just, they're almost exactly the same, but they look so slightly different. And that idea of looking through this, you know, series of ducks and I'm looking at every common golden eye in this river because I know there's a barrows among it and then bang, there it is. And you can see it's just that slightly different than the other ones. It's, it's a neat little finding. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a Western bird. So it's not usually out this far East. And that's why it's the first time I've ever seen it in my County. And that was kind of cool. But I, that's one of the things I've loved about birding too, is as I've started to do things more, uh, I've started to put my lists on eBird. I don't know if you've talked about eBird in this podcast before, but you know, as I put my lists on eBird, well, they want you to count the numbers. So, you know, like I can't just put mallard, I have to put 37 or 39 or however many there were. So I start, I've started getting better at actually counting them rather than just saying, oh, there's a bunch of mallards. And I found when I do that, like uh, one, two, three, four, oh, that's a female pintail. That's not a mallard. And so if, if you're paying attention, you actually find even more. Uh, and that's, that's always been fun as well, too eBird's such a great tool. It's yeah. my husband is just starting to get into birding. I've been working on him for years and he 
He's like, I'm not ready for eBird. I can just do Merlin. And I'm like, that's the gateway. That's good. That's that's yes. how we, you know, if you're, yes. if you're a beginner, start with Merlin. <laughs> and then as you get a little bit more into it and better at the identification, you go to eBird. But that observation, you're, you're right, is such an interesting, once you're counting and looking more closely, we have a million yellow rumped warblers out here right now. And every once in a while, I'm like, oh, that's all that's in this tree. And I'm like, oh, wait, 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 that's a goldfinch. You know, it's a yep. sneaky female goldfinch that's trying to blend in with the with the warblers. That's not a warbler. <laughs> and it does, it teaches, birding teaches us how to see. And that's such a delightful element of it. And yeah. I've, I've been getting really into ducks lately. I've been taking the kids to the, to the marsh and checking out ducks. And I've learned recently because I'm just starting to get into ducks that there are different kinds of ducks there are the dabbling ducks like the mallards that kind of sift the water in their bills yep. and then there are the diving ducks that go under the water and that some of these diving ducks don't like head first dive they like periscope down like a submarine and it's just <laughs> the most delightful thing I'm like what is how, how do you I don't know the physics of that I don't know how they do it but yeah, I could, I could sit by a pond all day. My, my husband's like, you're not retired yet. You need to, I'm like, I know. I just, just want to sit by, sit by the pond, watch the ducks. Um, all right. So you love, you love the golden eye and I'm going to link to your books in the show notes and the, these ecology resources. I will also link to the golden eye so people can pull it up yeah. and see it. Um, I was looking at your Amazon author profile and it mentions that you and Sheila like to take the RV and go looking for hawks. Yes. Well, I mean, that's just, we just picked that. We like all kinds of birds, but I, I really, I love hawks. I mean, I love, I like every kind of bird, but you have to pick one. You can't say, if you say something, you say birds, then you're like, okay, whatever. But, but you pick a, pick a type of bird, then it sort of zings more. So that's why we said hawks, but yeah, I, I, I like hawks. Totally. We have, uh, we have, um, I love it here in the winter because we occasionally get rough legged hawks. I don't know if you get those as far south as you are. I've never uh, seen one. Yeah. But those, those are, those are nice because they're so rare. We only ever, ever get them in the winter uh, mm -hmm. uh, here. I love, those are one of my favorites too. They're, they're so mm -hmm. cute. They're so, they're sort of compact and, and uh, they, they, they're a little more pudgy looking than, than the red tails. I just really love them. Hawks are amazing. I went a couple of weeks without seeing any here and I was kind of needing a hawk fix. And we yeah. pulled into the parking lot at the California Pizza Kitchen and there was a red-shouldered hawk sitting on uh. the takeout sign eating a rat. And I was like, of all the hikes I've taken and all the like drives I've taken looking for hawks, it's like, right, it was just staring me right in the eye. And my kids were like, is that a rat? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, nature. <laughs> Red and tooth and claw. It's not always just, it's not always just all rainbows and butterflies. But it's but it's still beautiful in its own way. It's just a different, it's just in a different way. We are <laughs> happy shoulders. when the rats are gone. We are yeah. thrilled when something eats the rats. Yeah. Red shoulders are amazing too. We, they're also a little bit rare here too, because the opposite reason, they're more farther south, right? So, but we, we do get them up here once in a while and I see them, you know, not, I see them, you know, uncommonly, but still, you know, with some regularity there. I like red tail, red shoulder talks too. Yeah. They're very, very cool birds. It's, it was staring right in our car window and I was glad the window was between us because it had a look in his eye. Like I'm, I'm not full yes. yet. <laughs> yeah. Red shoulder hawks have a real, yeah, they, they, they have that sort of, I punch above my weight kind of look. <laughs> like they, they, Do they, not they, mess they, with me. <laughs> yes. They're streamlined. They're yeah, they're a lean, mean, you know, rat hunting machine. <laughs> yes. And man, we need that. We have tree rats out here and it's just like they run around in our backyard. And I'm, I'm, I grew up in Northern Wisconsin. We were a rat free zone. And so they, they offend me like you out of the, out of the yard. I'm all for nature, not the rats though. Well, Keith, what is giving you hope these days? That is our trajectory on this podcast, birds and hope. And with the heavy work that you do, and I know working in birding and, and working on this Atlas, I'm sure there are also 
also moments of grief, like, oh, th- this species is in decline and we yes. haven't seen this in a little bit and the temperature was warm or there was a storm. And, you know, it, it can be easy to just be weighed down with the weight of grief when something you love is is precarious. Um, mm-hmm. So where are you finding hope? Well, I think I'm finding hope in the church in the fact that, you know, things are changing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that people are are realizing that some of the ways we've taught things in the past uh, are, you know, they're more a product of evangelical culture than they are about what Christianity was ever really meant to be. Um, one of the things that Sheila and I talk a lot about in all of our books and our writing is the fact that Jesus said, uh, you will know a tree by its fruit. Mm. A good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. So when we find things that are being taught in the church that sound toxic and they have toxic results, <laughs> we should realize that that's probably a sign that maybe that's us reading something into the Bible that's not supposed to be there. Mm. And though there's a lot of bastions of like male, male priority, you know, uh, things like that, that they're, they've been standing for a very, very long time. Um, and, but I think enough people are seeing now the toxicity behind some of those teachings uh, that they're realizing that maybe we do need to have a different look at this. Mm. And I've seen people who were very staunch proponents of those kind of ideas realizing either realizing that they were wrong which is great or at least realizing that even though i still believe that i do realize that harm is being done and we have to somehow stop that mm. um which is really good and i and i think that's really helpful for me for me i think we have a long way to go but i think there's been good good there's a good evidence that it's going starting to go in the right direction which is nice mm. so the second thing for as as far as the natural world is yeah, there's there is quite a bit of doom and gloom out there. I think that that's that's true, but I think that it's really amazing how much more people are starting to get interested in the natural world. And when I think of my own personal journey, you know, I've always loved nature, but I would never, when I was growing up, have considered myself the person who was really dedicated to nature conservation, particularly. I enjoyed nature, but the idea of preserving it, it was sort of a it was sort of taken for granted. I never really thought about it. Um, but then when I started becoming a bird watcher, and then when I started working on the Atlas, and as you said, you start to see their species in decline and things that are threatened and stuff, you you know, you can't interact that way with that and not have it affect you and not have you want to start trying to preserve this kind of stuff. And so, so I sort of see, see it as, and I, this is not my um, expressions. I heard someone else say it, so I can't take credit for it, but it's, it's like bird watching is kind of the gateway drug to conservationism, <laughs> you know? So I have hope the fact that bird watching is becoming this massive new hobby that like, it's rapidly growing. More and more people are getting interested in it. Um, and to me, that gives hope that we've got a whole new generation of people who are going to be dedicated to preserving not just birds, yes, birds, but but the rest of the natural world as well, too. So that gives me hope. I think I think that there, you know, if we band together, we can really make the world a, a better place. And, and I think that there's good evidence that you know, we still have a long way to go there as well, but I think there's evidence that at least we're on a path that can get us there. Hmm. Even though it's all going to burn anyway, Keith? 
<laughs> well, I, Ian, and that's Too the thing soon. I would say. That's, no, I, that's the one thing I would say is we have to, you know, I think we have to get serious about stewardship of creation. I mean, as I mean, I, the, the fact that my non-Christian friends think that the Christian idea is anti-nature to me is a, a massive indictment of how wrong we have gone in the church. I mean, we should be at the forefront of that movement um, if yes. we take if we take our faith at all seriously. Um, and it's it's just a it's just a disgrace that that's the way that we are perceived. Mm-hmm. And it should give us it should it should cause us grief, and it should cause us, you know, to repent <laughs> because that's what that's what we believe. When we're wrong, we realize we're wrong, and we repent and we try and get back on track. But, yeah. I know that's too heavy a word for a lighthearted podcast, but <laughs> no, but I, I think you're right. And and one of the things that's given me so much hope in starting this podcast is talking to guests like you who are holding together this robust theology with this love for the natural world because they're not two different things. They're the mm-hmm. same. They inform each other. And talking to folks who work for the Audubon Society and are also working within churches to to walk with pastors and walk with congregants and help us to see. Because when we see, we love. And when we love, we are able to steward these things in the way that God intends. And it's all over scripture. We're not making this up. This is not a new thing. And we're, we're recovering it. And, and that gives yes. me so much hope. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with, Keith? This has been such a delight. Thank you so much for the gift of your time and your wisdom and your books. And please give Sheila the biggest hug for me. I'm just so grateful for the work she's doing for women in the church. And and women who are outside of the church but have been harmed by these beliefs because they yeah. they've they've seeped out into all sorts of different areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think also too, uh, you know, our work is predominantly um, talking about the ways that women have been, um, you know, treated poorly. But men have also been given a very shallow view of what it means to be a man too, and that's there too. So if you're a man listening to this. Don't think this is, don't think the bare marriage and our books are all just for women. It's, it's for both of us. We need to have a healthier view uh, across the board. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, no, I will definitely uh, pass all that on to Sheila. I think that's, that's, uh, that's fantastic. We, um, we have so much, uh, I think, I think that the Christian faith has a lot to offer. Um, But I think that we need to, what we are lacking, I think these days is humility. Mm. Um, I think that we need to take a step back uh, and realize that, you know, saying we have all the answers <laughs> is not helping people. Um, we're not supposed to tell people the answers. We're supposed to be the answer for people. Mm. We should be loving people. We should be speaking into situations in a way that's bringing help and healing instead of just, you know, pointing out all the flaws and, you know, winning the culture wars and and all that kind of stuff. I think we do a lot better if we took a step back. And I think nature can help with that because you can't help, but when you're in nature, feel a little bit small, Mm. that it's not all about me, um, that I'm part of something. I'm, it's not that I'm not important, but I'm part of something bigger. Mm. And, and all of us are, relate interrelated interrelated to each other and all of us interact with each other and and i think that you know having that sort of humble sense that 
you have a place and you have a, you have something, you have a role, you have a, you have something you can achieve, you have something you can offer, but it's not all about you. Um, to me, that jives with, with how you practice your Christian faith. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's, that's what I would sort of leave you with. Mm. It's a wonderful relief. Yeah. 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 The God who cares for the sparrows cares for me too. And it's, it's not all, it's not all on me. I can rest in that great tradition and that great love. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Yep. Birding is the opposite of striving in many ways. Although when you're in that car driving quickly to see that lifer, there's a little striving. <laughs> and anxiety. It's really good for my prayer life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have so many um, experiences where like I was working um, and then like you get the rare bird alert, like five minutes into your work day. And then it's of course like you finish work after sunset. So you go back the next morning before work and it's gone. It was a yeah. one, it was a one day wonder, you know, it's just, it's dull. <laughs> and I, I've said many times, you know, she's, you know, my life is really interfering with my birding. <laughs> Thousand percent. I think birders should at least at like bare minimum, get two weeks off during spring migration. I just, oh, yeah, I think yeah. that's just humane. <laughs> That's amazing. So Keith, where can people find you? Uh, Well, from this podcast audience, probably the best place is on Instagram. On on Instagram, my handle is uh, Dr. Bird Nerd, which is uh, D-R-B-I-R-D-N-E-R-D. And basically I post, I try and post every day, but I've had some gaps where I try and post a new species every day and just a picture that I've taken of, of a bird and put a little blurb about it. That might be fun for people to find. So That is going to be my new favorite thing. Keith, thank you so much. Listeners, I will link to all of Keith's resources, uh, his wonderful book and uh, yeah. the, the golden eye and all of those good yeah. things in the show notes and you can, and ways that you can get in touch with him if you have further questions or want to ask him or Sheila or both to come and speak yeah. at, at your event. They do some wonderful, wonderful speaking ministries. Keith, thank you for the gift of your time and your expertise today. Oh, thanks. You're so welcome. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Yes, it does.